Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Welcome to Indian Summer. I'm Lawrence Santoro, and, well, now that we know each other, welcome to the Nook. I spoke too quickly last week, obviously, when I declared the death of summer. It was back up to near 80 this week. Well, it's Chicago, one of thousands of places wherein it might be said that if you don't like the weather, wait, well, you know the rest. We're edging up to Halloween now, and as you might have gathered from last week's show, I'm not a dress-up guy, I'm not averse to giving a tot or two a few peanut butter cups or an apple if they come ringing the bell on the night itself. But, well, as you probably know, this is a difficult place to find. We're well above, we are in the back, no windows overlook the thoroughfare, and the bell is well above the reach of little arms and fingers. The expansive, expressive, the joy-filled Miss Cecilia is a dress-up sort. She also loves to dress the apartment and the nook with it in the decorative trappings of various seasons. Right now our kitchen table is fully attired for this season, festooned, one might say, with gloom-emulating doodads, black cats, pumpkins, ghost schools, goblins— a tasteful display of historic and personal favorite Halloween cards, day-appropriate music plays at meals. Well, you have the idea, yes. A day or so after Halloween, all that will be swept away, and in its place will be the colors, the tchotchkes, the whatevers of Thanksgiving. Turkeys, corn, leaves of gold and crimson, fruit-spilling cornucopia, and pilgrims galore. I actually love it. 
Another reminder is due here. I believe there are a few seats left for the Joe Haldeman taught class over at the Starship Sofa on how to write science fiction. If you have an interest in attending this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, do I exaggerate? Yes, but I do know, Joe, and I do know that it will be a splendid and completely engaging thing. So if you want to be there at home with Joe speaking directly to you, go to the button on the Tales site or the District of Wonders page or, of course, over at the Starship Sofa and reserve your place for Sunday, November 11, 2012, at 4 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, Ms. Cecilia and I will be at the World Fantasy Convention in Toronto, so if there are any of you visitors to the Nook who plan to be there, look us up. We'll be glad to see you. In the flesh, as it were. The other bit of business tonight is, yes, you know, the book by the book, Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. Apart from helping keep us in chilly bandwidth in close and holy darkness and keeping the nook covered in the dust of ages, you will love the book itself. Here are 23 reasons why you will love it. Christopher Fowler, Michael Pankus, Gary McMahon, Alexei Collier, Bev Vincent, Joe R. Lansdale, Felicity Dalker, Martin Munt, Cat Rambo, Tim LeBone, Joe Pulver, John Everson, John Shirley, Karen Warren, Lawrence Santoro, <gasps> good grief, Lisa L. Hunnett, Margot Lanigan, Mark Morris, Nancy Kilpatrick, Nicole Cushing, Weston Oaks, Angela Slater, and Jean Wolfe. As I say every week, hmm? I know you'll enjoy the book, and so will those chums of yours who will be the fortunate ones whom you will gift with copies. Okay. As mentioned last week, co-editor Harry Markoff has asked me to contribute copy to what he calls a blog tour, something he's arranged. I am still rather vague on what is a blog tour, but I think I'm beginning to understand because I've now seen a good chunk of it. I believe bloggers turn over a page to us for the day, and we hold forth on various subjects dark and informative. One of these this past week, I did. It's about a little film that I saw when I was just knee-high to a shinbone. You see, and here I go with it, every school year at Fifth and Spring Elementary, we ended with a neighborhood celebration. It was held on the school's playground, and we called it the Strawberry Festival. For us, Hebhart, Mahler, Davy Brown, Missy and Trissy, the talking magpies, that was that for the school year. No more finer frock, no more dreaming out the windows while John Levy did long division at the blackboard, mumbling to himself. No more Patty Bullock, baton twirling. No more Hazel Gensler cooties. The festival was it, over and out, summer's kickoff. We spent weeks in advance going around the neighborhood selling festival ticket books, four strips of heavy paper stapled together, each strip with five stubs, each stub worth five cents. This was festival currency used to buy baked goods, things from the white elephant table. One year, the table yielded a large red book from the 1880s, Wood's Natural History. 
This book told of the Reverend J.G. Wood's wanderings among African and Pacific Island tribes. Pictures galore, steel engravings of native women doing native women things, wondrous images of cannibal tribes doing cannibal tribe things. Reverend Wood became our favorite man of the cloth, his illustrations causing us to reassess the twin magpies, Missy and Trissy Fritz, who were our constant companions. Reverend Wood's life work was, of course, snatched away when the parents actually opened the book. Anyway, pardon this digression. There were pony rides for the kiddies, merry-go-round rides for bigger tots, really good finger-scalding french fries, music, if you like that kind of stuff. And there were steaming, dry-ice-frozen bricks of ice cream with a runny dollop of strawberries ladled over it. And there were cartoons in the gym, a full hour of them. This three-story cavern, the gym, still smelled of sweat, socks, disgrace. A million wooden folding chairs clattered. The projector ratcheted away in half-light. It tossed an image barely bright enough to see. The soundtrack bounced around the tile walls backstage and up among the steel rafters. It played round the stowed-up rings and the up-cranked basketball nets and got to your ears with so many echoes of itself that the lips on the screen had forgotten what they had said. Still, it was an hour of cartoons. Watched assessed with chums, made loud fun of as they played out like Saturday matinees at the Strand Theatre. Except we knew these. We knew what was coming, when to respond, when to warn, when to chorus with. And, of course, we did. We'd been there every year. They never changed. Most were scratchy black and white from the 1930s. Still, we cheered when Heckle and Jekyll's smart-alecky faces appeared. We loved Droopy Dog and everyone, bar none, even Principal Ash, the ticket-taker, projectionist, and monitor, loved the anarchist Woody Woodpecker. But the reason I came to the show every festival evening was the brave little tailor. I had seen it at my first festival. I was six, new in the neighborhood, a kindergarten dropout from my old place across town. I hadn't yet started at Fifth and Spring, so that first time I was most likely alone among strangers, or, well, if not alone, then with a parent. Parents, though, they never reckoned the difference between what they saw and what I did. The brave little tailor came at the end of the show, Woody and Droopy, Heckle and Jekyll, Farmer Alfalfa, Andy Panda, they'd all come, they'd gone. Then, in black and white, stop-motion animation, the brave little tailor began. It is fairy tale time. The land is threatened by a dragon. Nightly, the beast waddles forth from its cave in the hills, eats local sheep. The usual rewards are offered. Brave huntsmen, brave knights go forth. They are eaten, yes, yes eaten. Finally, the smallest person in the film, a tailor's apprentice, no bigger than I, says he'll try it. Instead of armor and shield, he wears his tailoring clothes. Instead of arrows, sword, and spears, he stuffs poison into a sheepskin, stitches it up quick as that. And when night falls, he carries the stuffed sheep into the dark and scary woods, up the hill, and to the mouth of the dragon's cave, where he leaves the skin. He hides behind rocks, waits, and waits, and waits. The night 
watch grows darker, scarier. The moon slides behind clouds. Finally, the little guy grabs a stone, goes to the cave mouth, tosses the rock into the dark. Out bellows the dragon. It rears up, its wings spread. Big pointy bat wings flap and blow a gale that nearly knocks our hero down. The dragon snorts fire and steam at the little tailor, who retreats backwards on his butt. The dragon turns. He leaps. He rages. He is terror itself. I nearly faint. Then it sees the poison pelt, sniffs, picks it up, plays with it, teases us, sniffs it again, then eats it in a gobble. Like that, the creature goes funny. He knows something's wrong. He turns round and round. He staggers. His movements become even jerkier. He waddles past our little hero. He's forgotten him. All the dragon now wants is water, something to cool the poison fire in his belly. He buries his snout in the nearby stream and drinks. He drinks. He drinks and drinks. The little tailor cannot believe how much he drinks. The dragon's stomach swells and swells. The tailor is amazed, amazed. The dragon's gut is so large, round, and tight, his stubby feet can't reach the ground. He is a scaly balloon of a dragon, now... And finally, and here I must stop, my factual memory is that the dragon died, and that was all. Dragon dead, Taylor returns to village, claims reward, happy, end of film. The fact is, I never found out what happened to the critter until maybe fourth grade. I, I, I hid my eyes, yearly. I was not only afraid of dragons, but of balloons. An about-to-burst dragon balloon was more than I could take. So, hide the eyes, stuff the ears. End of story. Dragon dead. That was the beginning, you see. Now, the reason I tell this is because the dragon became a companion. Through childhood, adolescence, adulthood, to this day, he was, is, expected. A constant and a presence in the narrow space between the wall and my bed, wherever that was. I knew, I know, he's there. He waits. Tonight I will sleep with my back to that narrow darkness between bed and wall, because I know if I see him, well, <laughs> but... If I don't see him, he can rear up, his spiky ears can touch the ceiling, he can spread his wings and roar, silent as the night. But he can never, ever harm me, never eat me. That much I know of the rules of terror. He knows them, too. An agreement. I am his to take, but he is mine and will feed and nourish me with life and shivers for as long as we both shall be. Sometimes, you see, sometimes our fears, our little terrors born in childhood, do become the things on which you build a life. And that's all. That's all. So... That was one of my contributions to the blog tour that Henry Markoff set up, hoping to get people outside the nook interested uh, to buy our book. You will, won't you? You'll buy our book? Yes, 
Of course you will. Fiction. Tonight we have a disturbing piece of alternate history from Lavi Tidhar. Lavi grew up on a kibbutz in Israel and has since lived in South Africa, the UK, Vanuatu, and Laos. Currently he lives in London. He won the British Fantasy Award this year for his novella Gorel and the Pot-Bellied God, and he is a current nominee for the 2012 World Fantasy Award for his novel Osama, the which I have just purchased. He's been nominated for a BSFA Award, a Sidewise Award, Israel's Geffen Award, the Airship Award, the Sturgeon and Campbell Awards. Well, you see where we're going? He's won a lot of awards. The Financial Times of London says of Lavi's novel Osama that it bears comparison with the best of Philip K. Dick's paranoid alternate history fantasies. It is beautifully written and undeniably powerful. And speaking of powerful, beautifully written, alternate history, paranoid fantasies, be warned. Our story tonight contains some rather specific sexual adventures, so listen closely. Here is Lavi Tidhar's 304 Adolf Hitlerstrasse. When they came for Herschel Ostropol, it was not at night, but in the middle of the afternoon, and they came quiet and with no warning with just a polite knock on the door. He had taken it to be the postman carrying a late delivery of one of his special magazines. But the two who stood in the doorway wore no uniforms and only their eyes betrayed who and what they were. They called him by his real name, which was Hansi. But they knew who he really was and he knew then that it was over. The knowledge washed him in lethargy and a sense of futility made him open his hands as if in a shrug, his fat fingers opening limply, sweat dampening his palms. They had interrupted him writing. It was another one of his stories. The computer was left switched on in his small study, Grandad's old room, and his special books and magazines lay in plain view on the desk. He knew then that it was over, and he went with them without a fight and let them steer him into the dark Mercedes that waited for him, as he knew it would, outside. How it began, how Hansi Himmler first came to assume the identity of Herschel Ostropol, he could hardly articulate, but it can be pinpointed to two events that both happened close together— he was given the new computer, and he caught his grandfather with a prostitute. The computer was a Bulgarian province. Along with the modem, the computer came with a small communications program and a list of telephone numbers for several bulletin board systems in and around Berlin. The first time Hansi connected to the BBS was late on the night of his birthday, when his parents were sleeping and he had the telephone line to himself. He dialed the first number on the screen and found himself confronted with a colorful welcome screen. On the BBS, Hansi discovered that night he could download small programs and text files and even code, and he could post messages on the BBS which other people could then read. He chose his first identity that night, his first login name. He wanted Nighthawk, but ended up being Nighthawk 1 as the first name was already taken. Hansi didn't care. 
He read the public post and he downloaded a text file that contained 111 dirty jokes. And more importantly, he also downloaded a file containing the telephone numbers of many other BBSs. For him, it was a discovery. He felt like Ernst Schaffer must have felt on his expedition to Tibet to prove the origin of the Aryan race, as if he too were an explorer in a new and mysterious land. He had found a door to a new world, and everything was suddenly possible. Everything. Grandad, Hauptabschnitzleiter Himmler, lived with his son and daughter-in-law in the solitary room on the ground floor by the garden. He was once a distinguished head section leader, but had retired many years back and now spent most of his time in his room, unseen by his family. He was not a well man, and Hansi knew Herr and Frau Himmler worried about him. Hansi returned home early one day from school with a sore throat and a headache that buzzed little flies on the inside of his skull. His parents were away and Grandad should have been asleep in his room, but he wasn't. As Hansi came through the door, he heard strange sounds coming from his grandfather's room towards the back. He listened carefully, the words and the sounds making him feel strange though he couldn't then define what it was he felt exactly. It took him a while to realize they were the sounds of sex. He edged his way down the corridor. His head still hurt, and an uncomfortable erection was building in the pants of his khaki uniform. The door to Grandad's room was ajar, and light spilled out from it onto the darkened corridor. The voices were louder and more persistent. Grandad and a woman... She was shouting something, and as he came closer, he could hear the words so clear that they cut through his mind like sharp crystal and remained there forever. They had the tang of well-rehearsed stock lines, though he only understood that later. You disgust me, you sick, perverted old man. You're nothing but a dirty Jew. Through the open door, Hansi saw Hauptabschnitzleiter Himmler crouching naked on the bed, his thin, wrinkled buttocks raised in the air. Above him stood a middle-aged woman dressed in the old uniforms of an SS officer, holding a riding crop in her hand. As she spoke, she hit the old man hard against his rear, making him scream. "'What are you?' I said. "'What are you, animal?' I'm a Jew, the old man cried. I'm a dirty Jew. And what do we do to dirty, disgusting Jews? The woman asked. Hansi caught sight of her sagging white breast below the open leather coat. She had bright red nipples that looked squished over the pale twin mounds of her chest. It made him feel both scared and excited. Punish them, the old man said. He was breathing rapidly, and his voice was muffled now, his speech unclear. Hansi saw his grandfather's face turned against the white, fluffy pillow it was resting on. The old man looked back at the aged SS officer. A little drool rested at the corner of his mouth. Punish me, mistress, he said. Spank me. Hurt me. The woman whose face had so far remained calm almost bored while the old man's face was turned away. Had a lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Now assumed a new expression. She smiled slowly, licking her red lips as she exposed yellowing teeth. You should have gone to the gas chambers, she said. You disgust me. The riding crop went up, came down again with a sharp whack. Yes, the old man said. Yes, yes. Something sticky and warm spread in Hansi's undergarments, and he shuddered and bit his fist until it hurt. He stood there for a long moment, mortified. Inside the room, the noise slowly abated. He looked inside and saw the woman was looking directly at him now, and she was smiling. She reached her hand out. He always remembered the long, pale fingers, the bright red varnish on the nails, and gently shut the door. That'd be fifty Reichsmark again, Herr Himmler, he heard her say through the closed door. Thank you, Helga, yes, Hansi heard his grandfather say. His voice had regained its old authority. He sounded nothing like the pathetic creature that begged to be spanked. I shall expect you again the same time next week, Hansi retreated at the sounds of movement from inside. A moment later, he could hear the door open and the clicking of heels against the floor. Make sure! he heard the old man say, and the woman laughed and said, I know, I know, I'll go through the back door. Hansi waited in the kitchen, afraid to move, afraid to make a sound, until he heard the back door open and close. His grandfather had not come out of his room. Finally, he went up to his room and switched on the computer. At the library, Hansi found pictures of Jews in a large leather-bound book on one of the top shelves. They were of grotesque-looking creatures, alien and frightening. He stared at them, repulsed, fascinated. He couldn't have described the feelings he felt, not then. He also stared down the librarian's top, trying to see her breast when he thought she wouldn't notice him. 
On another visit, the librarian showed him an old documentary film, Fritz Hippler's The Eternal Jew, and its images of hordes upon hordes of rats drowning in sewers filled Hansi with frightened fascination. There is not much information, the librarian sighed, and she removed her glasses and wiped them with the hem of her sweater. It's better that way. Yes, miss, Hansi said. Yet something drew him to find out more, a dark fascination that grew inside him like an obsidian rose and made him spend himself alone in bed at night. Sometimes he thought of the pictures and sometimes of the librarian removing her glasses and lifting up her sweater, revealing soft, pale skin underneath. That day after watching the film, he logged in to several of the local BBSs and posted a brief message on each asking about those strange, forgotten beings, the Jews. Nothing happened the first day or the day after. In fact, a full week passed before he had a reply, a private message. It contained a telephone number and a login name and a password. He sat in his room. His parents were asleep. He dialed the number and connected to the Judenhacker BBS. The Judenhackers called it Slash. It stood for the Slash sign in the Jewish-slash-Nazi stories. They gathered to reimagine the relationship with that vanished, mysterious race, writing stories with titles such as The Stalag of Death, telling stories of concentration camps of Stalags where sadistic Aryan female guards were captured by their former slaves, the Jews, recreating powerful sexual fantasies from third-hand memories at a time that was gone and would not come again. All quiet, Hansi thought. The house was secure. He was alone. On his head he wore a homemade yarmulke, and pinned to his cheeks were long, pretend side curls, and as he masturbated he nodded his head to a prayer he didn't know. I'm seventeen, he thought as he covered himself up, a vague lack of satisfaction irritating at him. The stories were no longer enough. I should... He chose a pen name for himself that night, a handle, Herschel Ostropol, after a forgotten Jewish legend of a storyteller. Already he knew what he wanted to do, what his purpose was, and that night he sat in front of the keyboard and wrote his first story and published it in the morning. It was called The Last Jew and the Virgins of the Rhine. The Last Jew and the Virgins of the Rhine, Part 1 by Herschel Ostropol. The Jewish youth lies in wait for hours on end, spying on the unsuspicious German girl he plans to seduce. He wants to contaminate her blood and remove her from the bosom of her own people. Adolf Hitler, Mein Kampf. He drove carefully over the blasted roads and into Paris, avoiding with ease the few checkpoints the army had thrown up half-heartedly outside the city, the war had ended, after all. They had won. There were no more Jews. He parked the Volkswagen in the darkened Latin Quarter on the left side of the Seine from Notre Dame. He stepped out of the car into the cool air, inhaling the scent of sewage and roasting chestnuts on the breeze. For a moment he remembered a time before the war when he visited Paris with Miriam and the baby, he forced the memory away and began marching into the maze of alleyways and shuttered shops that was the Quartier Latin. There, 
It was an ancient stone building, with windows carefully blank. He stood in the shadows and watched. There was a sentry on duty outside the heavy oak door. A solitary working street lamp cast a hazy glow over the entrance, and he watched, carefully observing as the striking young girl stood up and stamped her feet on the ground. She was blonde, a pure-blooded Aryan. Her golden hair was cut short at the shoulders, spilling over pale, delicate cheekbones. She wore a tailored black coat that opened momentarily when she moved, revealing dark leather, the flash of a white thigh. He looked closer, observing, memorizing, long silk stockings stretched over those long, beautiful legs, and a black, sleek handgun was strapped to one thigh. Virgins of the Rhine. He felt a shiver of apprehension run down his back. He had to remind himself the girl was a cold-blooded assassin, attractive and deadly. The door opened, spilling more light onto the pavement, and he heard the momentary sound of laughter and piano music from inside. A second girl was framed in the doorway, and his eyes traveled over her long, muscular body that was clad only in a body-hugging black dress, accentuating her firm, large breast and flat stomach. The girl marched down the steps and stood facing the guard. She snapped a sharp salute that was followed by the other guard. All quiet, Helga? All quiet, ma'am. The tall blonde nodded. Her lips were bright red, and when she smiled, they revealed between them rows of white teeth. Go back inside, Helga. I'll take over for a while. You're needed in the basement to help with the prisoners. Ma'am? The guard, Helga, snapped another salute and smiled at her superior. Her tongue ran over her lips slowly, as if she was already contemplating her job inside the thick walls of the building. The two women stood close to each other, their faces almost touching. "'Go,' the tall blonde murmured. "'The prisoners you need. Leave them alive.' "'For a while longer,' Helga whispered. The two women's lips touched lightly, almost hungry." "'Go,' the leggy blonde said. She laid long, delicate fingers on Helga's shoulders and stripped her slowly of her long coat. The hidden watcher felt himself getting aroused almost against his will as Helga's perfect form was revealed. The tall blonde covered herself with a coat. "'Go,' she said again, and this time it was a command. Helga obeyed. She walked up the steps and disappeared into the mansion, closing the door behind her.' The hidden watcher looked at the woman that remained. It was time to act. He stepped out of the shadows and walked briskly towards the blonde woman. To be continued. Herschela sat in the basement of the Technische Universität Berlin, the converted computer lab. He was working, but it wasn't on homework, though he had to hand in an assignment in the morning. The assignment was about a new kind of viral electronic mail that the papers were calling Goebbels mail, a kind of mass advertising of products. Hansi didn't care. He was writing. The lab was empty, warm. Outside the snow fell, and through the window he could dimly see his beat-up Volkswagen being covered in white. It was silent, comforting, Safe. He stood and looked around, but could see no one. He slipped the yarmulke from his pocket and put it on his head. He sat in front of the keyboard and felt a tingle in his fingers and down below. 
His story had been well accepted, he thought, and it made him smile. It was the feedback that almost drove him now, more than the other kind of gratification. There was a lively debate about his story on the BBS, ranging from the congratulatory, keep going, it's really good, to the nitpickers. It was an old English word. It came from slavery when there were still African people to enslave, who argued over the minute details of the story on whether the clothes were right for the period to Herschel's choice of car for his character. But there was interest and several more discreet messages who assured him his story was affecting them in the same way slash stories have always affected him. Too soft core was another comment, and so now Herschel uh, allowed himself greater liberty as he began to write the shorter. Second part of what he was already planning would become an ongoing series. Tucked away in the basement, Herschel forgot his audience and wrote only for himself a metal star of David pressing painfully into his palm as excitement made him close his fingers in an involuntary fist. The Last Jew and the Virgins of the Rhine, Part 2, by Herschel Ostopol. Stop! the blonde woman said, pointing the carbine in his chest. Her cat eyes examined him leisurely, almost hungrily. The last Jew raised his hands calmly to shoulder height. In his left hand he was clutching a brown wallet. The paperwork inside it had cost him a small fortune several months ago from an old forger in Nice. Standarten für Walter Fitte, SS, he said. His eyes followed the blonde's heaving chest, followed exposed contours of her breast up to her face, to the eyes widening in surprise, to the red tongue moistening her full lips. Surprise? Anticipation? A touch of fear? He lowered his hands and watched the blonde raise the carbine. Colonel, I did not know. He saw the subversive light in her eyes and didn't hesitate. There was only one way to act from the start, and he didn't hesitate. He reached out and grabbed the blonde, pulling her closer to him, his hands resting on her breast, his erection pressed against her soft backside. Do not underestimate me, Fräulein, he said softly as she squirmed against his body. I am here to inspect and to judge the hand of the SS. And here he shoved his fingers between the blonde's legs, feeling her hidden mound grow moist against his finger, reaches a long, long way. He released her and watched her sway. Lead on, he said, and motioned for her to proceed him up the stairs to the mansion. Almost as an afterthought, he picked up the carbine and pointed it between the blonde's eyes. Don't make me repeat myself, he said. He watched in silence as she wriggled up the stairs, her smooth ass moving sensuously against the leather. He followed her into the headquarters of the Virgins of the Rhine and closed the door softly against the darkness outside. To be continued. Yes, of course I was pleased with the last Jew's fake identity, the colonel's name I made from adding together the names of Frederick Fitter and Walter Rauf, both rather obscure historical figures, the contents were rather harder, the sense of something major happening almost, or so I like to think, palpable, Hansi said. He was sitting in a coffee shop on Göringstrasse with his friend. 
His friend was also a colleague. They worked for Deutsche Bank together. His name was Hermann. I also enjoyed your Nazi biker sluts. Why won't you come out tonight? Hermann said now. Quite risque, I thought. I hope so, Hansi said. They were quite alone. No one was listening. And I thought Nazi super sex toys last all summer long was almost poetic, Herman said. He was something of a fan, and he began to look shiny with perspiration. Too bad the last Jew had to come to an end. I couldn't keep it up, Hansi said. The last installment of The Last Jew and the Virgins of the Rhine was published just as he got the job. His parents had died soon after in a train crash when they went to visit relatives in Vienna, and Hansi stayed to live alone in the family house. I also liked your monograph on fetishizing and eroticizing of the Jew, Herman said. Thought-provoking, he coughed and looked at his feet. So what are you working on now? Hansi smiled. It was a strange, almost ethereal smile. I'll show you, he said. Meet me next week at the house. They drank the rest of their coffee in silence and admired the girls who passed them by. The house was at number 304 Adolf Hitlerstrasse. It was a comfortable white-fenced house in a quiet suburb of Berlin with neatly trimmed lawn at the front. But when Hermann arrived there, Hansi was gone. His last story was found on his desk, uncompleted. Hermann found the house undisturbed, the door open. Hansi's ancient Pravets still turned on, the word processing program still running, the story uncompleted on the screen. Hansi's special books and magazines lay in plain sight over the desk. It was as if Hansi, perhaps getting up to answer a knock on the door, had then simply disappeared. The story was called... Herschel Ostropol in the Stalag of Death, and it began like so. Herschel Ostropol in the Stalag of Death. When they came for him, it was not at night, but in the middle of the afternoon, and the two women came quiet and with no warning, with just a polite knock on the door. He had taken it to be the postman carrying a late delivery of one of his special magazines, but the two who stood in the doorway wore no uniforms, and only their eyes betrayed who and what they were. Hansi knew then that it was over. The knowledge washed him in lethargy, and a sense of futility made him open his hands as if in a shrug, his slim fingers opening limply, sweat dampening his palms. They had interrupted him writing. It was another one of his stories. The computer was left switched on in his small study, and his special books and magazines lay in plain view on the desk. He knew then that it was over, and he went with them without a fight, and let them steer him into the dark Mercedes that waited for him, as he knew it would. Outside, the two female SS colonels sat opposite him in the car, leather skirts riding up their pale thighs. Their lips were colorless without lipstick, and their blonde hair gathered like dew on their shoulders. "'What will you do with me?' he whispered, unconsciously licking his lips. The woman on his left had brought out a horsewhip and was stroking it, almost tenderly. "'What will we do with you?' she asked. A gold swastika plunged from her neck into her bosom. 
hung on a thin necklace. She looked out of the window. We'll teach you what it really means, she said, to be treated like a Jew. The car purred as it went into motion, and soon it was gone from Adolf Hitlerstrasse, heading towards to be continued. The End Thanks for that, Lovey. 304 Adolf Hitlerstrasse was published in Clark's World magazine in 2006. Other stories of his have appeared in Interzone, Strange Horizons, Fantasy Magazine, World Literature Today, Sci Fiction, the Del Rey Book of Science Fiction and Fantasy, World Fantasy Award winning anthologies, and it goes on and on and on and, and, and hopefully on. 304 Adolf Hitlerstrasse was read for us tonight by Matt Stevens. So thank you, Matt. I have one more thing to mention before we part company tonight. At the end of the month, we will say goodbye to Tales to Terrify's co-editor, Harry Markov. Harry's been with us since the beginning. He's had the daunting task of being the reader of all things— Things arriving by request or over the transom, and that is a lot of darkness for one Eastern European sensibility to sift through. Harry's also been one of the prime forces behind the book, the book, and he probably is, as we extol his virtues here in the nook, at his computer somewhere in Bulgaria doing last-minute proofing and tweaking of it. And when Volume 1 is out, Harry will head back to the world of work and school and personal life and personal goals. And I thank you, Harry, and I know we all wish you the very best. So, with that, I would have you be up and doing, bright and chipper. I see the temperature has dropped since you arrived. It's into the 40s now. Excellent. I hope you came prepared. If not, well, just switch into alternate reality mode. Pluck from the multiverse the reality in which the cold at month's start continued downward to today, leaving you perfectly prepared for tonight's chill. And when you walk home, then, consider all the manifold possibilities, all the diverse outcomes of your little stroll here to there. Think about the car that did not jump the curb as you waited for the light at Broadway. Think of what might have been the substance of that shadow, the one that hovered in the alley by the bar on the corner. As you approach the lake, think of the possibilities of a seish wave. And when you get home, climb into bed and think, did you remember to lock the door did you remember to turn off the coffee pot? Did... And as the worlds that might be spin, spin, spin in your thoughts, just consider them all a hundred million pleasant dreams. Hmm? Hmm? 
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Thank you for listening.